702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And remember, it gets very busy doing this uh, segment because it's so popular. Give us a call right now with your questions for Chris on 011-883-0702 in Johannesburg and in Cape Town on 021-446-0567. You're also welcome to tweet a question for The Naked Scientist at UCBS at Radio 702 or at Cape Talk. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Are you well? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I was last time I looked. No, I'm good. Thank you very much. And it's, it is Friday and uh, the sun is shining here, which is wonderful. That's great. And we've got some interesting science to talk about and we're going to have some great questions. So what's Absolutely. not to like? Well, you sound very well. If you don't, I will um, take a commercial break and check in with you on the other <laughs> side. The science story of the week pleases my heart. It's one of those double-edged uh, stories where a tragedy that uh, we would not have wanted to choose have as often happens, I think, in the history of science, uh, Chris, uh, led inadvertently to potential other other upsides in trying to problem-solve it. Yes, indeed. This is a paper about Zika virus. Now, we've seen a rash of Zika virus papers in the last few weeks because, as always happens with these things, something happens, lots of data get collected, then lots of scientists work on that data, and then discoveries get made and then published. So although Zika first really hit the headlines in 2014, 2015, it's only now that we're beginning to see a lot of the science being done on what's really happened. And one of the reasons that Zika became prominent in the news in 2015-2016 is because there was a big excess of babies being born in Brazil with the condition microcephaly and this means having a head and a brain which are too small and quite quickly scientists established that the cause of this was Zika virus they could place the virus at the scene of the crime in these patients so they knew it was doing this but no one knew why and now thanks to a group of scientists in Cambridge we do know why Uh, The virology has been done by a guy called Ian Goodfellow, who's uh, a leads group in Cambridge. And he, with a group from uh, one of the other institutes in Cambridge University, they had been studying, uh, the other group at Cambridge, had been studying a family in Turkey where the children had an inherited form of microcephaly. So these children were born with brains that were too small. And the researchers found that they had a problem with a gene called Musashi, Musashi 1, MSI 1. And so to work out what that gene might be doing, they then looked in the database to see what else it might do. And because people had published various genetic sequences of Zika virus, the researchers in Cambridge realised that their Musashi-1 gene also appears to be uh, picked up and used by Zika virus, which seemed extraordinary. So they then got onto the virologists, who then confirmed that, in fact, Zika virus binds onto this particular signal in brain cells, and it makes the virus grow better. So they did experiments where they added the gene to cells that don't have it, um, rather they increased the level of the gene expression in the cells that don't have it, and the virus grew better. They took the gene away from those cells, and the virus grew less well. And so we now know that the reason Zika goes for brain cells, and particularly early brain cells that are just developing is because they make a lot of this MSI1 signal which the virus then uses to encourage its own growth and in the process it robs the cell of the signal it needs to make the neurons mature properly plus it also encourages the virus to grow which goes on to kill the brain cells so it's Mm. a double whammy. But the real interesting thing here is that when I was exploring this story which is out in the journal Science this week I bumped into a neurosurgeon also in Cambridge called Harry Bullstrode and he told me he's now starting to use or starting a project 
that will use Zika virus to treat brain cancers because one particular class of brain tumours are the gliomas. These are very aggressive, very invasive tumours that have very grim prognoses. And at the moment, the only thing you can really do is to offer people palliative therapy. In other words, you buy them time. And part of the reason is it's very hard to remove the cells that cause the cancer from the brain without doing terrible damage to the brain. And these gliomas are driven by stem cells that are very, very similar biochemically, genetically, and in terms of their characteristics, to the cells that make the nervous system grow in a developing baby. Mm. Therefore, they're very susceptible to Zika virus, but mature brain cells aren't. So the technique they're going to develop, they're, they're at the very early stages of this project, so it's not a cure yet, but they're going to put Zika viruses into these glioma cells. The virus will replicate or grow and kill the tumour cells, but when it gets to the healthy brain tissue in the adult brain, then it will stop growing because those cells don't support the virus because they mm. lack this MSI1 factor that the uh, Cambridge team discovered. So we'll obviously have to wait and see how this project goes because it yes. literally is just getting going. But isn't that fascinating? That is absolutely take fascinating. A discovery wow. which causes disease and then apply it to another disease to try and cure it. Wow. Thank the Lord for scientists. 11 your question for the Naked Scientist. Chris is standing by in Cape Town. You can put a question to him right now on 21 Natasha, good morning. Good morning. Hi, Miss, uh, um, I've had this question for the last few weeks, and I always miss the opportunity to call. Um, my husband's got um, what I believe is IBS. It hasn't actually been diagnosed because he doesn't want to go to the doctor. But random foods that he eats, bread, um, curries, and the like, always cause a severe reaction. He's in the loo most of the time. So I wanted to find out um, other ways to, uh, without actually going to the, the doctor to diagnose it, or even in going there, are there non-invasive methods to diagnose it, and also remedies, medication, prevention, are there permanent solutions? What are there the options? Thank you, Natasha. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear about the, the predicament uh, in which he finds himself. The answer is yes to pretty much all of the above. In fact, about a six, eight weeks ago, we made a program on The Naked Scientist and we looked exactly at this topic. And so if, uh, if you want to look on thenakedscientist.com, you'll find there is a program all about the microbiome, which is the bugs that live in your gut. And one component of that was looking at IBS, irritable bowel, uh, bowel yeah. syndrome. Um, and it talks about practical hints and tips as to what can be done. So have a look at that. But to give you an answer right now on air, um, the reason we think this happens is because of what can be referred to as a dysbiosis. We think that for some reason, in some people, the spectrum of bugs that inhabit the gut um, on which we depend to keep us healthy, that mm -hmm. gets disturbed and you get overgrowth of some populations of bacteria and you have a paucity or an underrepresentation of other groups of bacteria. And when this happens, this disturbance contributes to the symptoms and the feeling unwell. And probably what happens is that certain foodstuffs, under certain circumstances, select for the bugs that grow in us and we don't know why it happens, but it, it can be that the bug spectrum distorts in some people in response to certain foods. And because they have a distorted bug spectrum, when you then challenge those bugs with other foods, they then produce a lot of these symptoms that we experience and find unpleasant. In order to deal with the problem, uh, there are ways to 
repair your microbiome and there is something called a microbiome repair kit and there are some prescribed diets which you can follow you have to be extremely extremely adherent to them for not just days but weeks to months and then slowly your bacterial spectrum does seem to reset and one way to do this is that you remove all of the exciting foods for a while and go right back to very very basic very very boring but uh, but but mundane foodstuffs and you get your microbiome to settle down and then you begin to reintroduce things and it's the gentle reintroduction and challenge that seems to allow things to accommodate rather than massively change and people do get relief this way but uh, if you refer to that podcast i mentioned have a listen to that and if you have any further problems just um, just drop me an email it's chris at the naked scientist.com and um, and i'll see if i can give you some more references thank you natasha and all the best to you thanks for your question rueda good morning uh, good morning. Uh, I've got a question for Chris. The gallbladder and the function thereof, I had mine removed last year. I was told uh, you can live without it. But yes, you can live without it. But I've noticed if you eat certain foods, you get terrible cramps within seconds. So I do link that to removal of the gallbladder. Is that true? Thank you, Rueda. Hi, Rueda. The, the answer is yes. Um, the gallbladder is a little bag. It's about the size, of, really, of your thumb. And it comes off the side of the duct that dangles under the liver that collects bile. And bile is the fatty material. It's got various fats and cholesterol in it, which is squirted out by your liver into the small intestine. And it, the amount that's squirted out is governed by how fatty the food you're eating is. So if you have a very fatty meal, you will produce a lot more bile. And if you have a less fatty meal, you will produce and require less bile. And the role of bile is that these fatty chemicals act a bit like detergent, soap. And they break up the big blobs of fat into very small blobs of fat. And this gives them a big surface area inside your intestine so your digestive juices can work on them. Because if you have one big blob of fat, it's only got so much surface that the digestive process can attack. And therefore, the amount of the calories in there that you can absorb is limited. And if you don't have enough bile going in, then all of that fat ends up going further down the intestine and then into the large bowel where it can't be acted on further and it feeds the wrong sorts of bacteria and it contributes to symptoms a bit like the previous caller, Natasha, was, was saying her partner has um, IBS. So, uh, and then everyone gets these horrible symptoms called steatorrhea where, where you produce things which are very not ple pleasant to put down the toilet. Now... The, it's certainly true you're not harmed if you have your gallbladder out as long as you are careful with what you eat. But if you do go and eat very, very fat-rich meals, you won't have a storage, a reserve of bile, because the gallbladder would normally do that job and have an extra reserve of bile for when you need it. That's gone, so you only have a smaller trickle of bile and you will get symptoms because there's not enough bile there to help to break down the extra fat that goes in, and so you dump a lot more of that fat further down the intestine where it's not red ready for that sort of input. So the best thing to do is to eat a healthy diet because actually the diet that we would regard as healthy is one that's that's got the right amount of fat calories in it. If you have too much fat, you'll get symptoms, then you know. So this is a good way of keeping yourself on a good on, on diet street, healthy diet street, I suppose. Mm. Let's take a question next from social media, Chris. Here's one from Twitter, and um, Mullen tweets the following question. Can you please ask Chris Eusebius whether a couple 
that is uh, phenotypically white, could they give birth to a child that is phenotypically black or in South African parlance coloured? Yes. Um, we, we actually talked about this, but in reverse on 702 a number of years ago because there was the fairly famous case of a Nigerian couple who had a white baby. And everyone said, well, they must be liars or, you know, must be making this up. And the pictures were in the press. It's perfectly possible for this to happen. Now, obviously, in, in South Africa, you also occasionally see children going around who have albinism yes. and they have skin which is white, um, big, but nonetheless they are black children. You also get the condition vitiligo, where the immune system can damage the melanin-producing cells in the skin, so your skin looks white even though actually you were probably born black. But at the same time, is it possible for two white people to have a black baby? It is possible because the reason that skin is either black or white comes down to melanin. Melanin is a pigment made by melanocytes, cells in the skin. And if I took a biopsy from a black person's skin or a white person's skin or a coloured person's skin, what you would see is the numbers of melanocytes is exactly the same. But the difference between the skin tones or colours is the amount of melanin those melanocytes produce. So you could potentially have a baby which had some kind of genetic change that had gone on that makes its melanocytes produce more melanin into the skin and make its skin darker. That's certainly possible. I'm not aware of any cases. It, what, what wouldn't happen, though, is that the other genes, because the way we look is governed not just by a handful of genes but by thousands of genes which mm. all contribute to our appearance or phenotype. That's what that word means. And what you wouldn't get with two phenotypically white Caucasian type people is a baby that had black skin and looked like a black African person because obviously there are characteristics such as stature, facial structure, hair type etc which go along with an African person's you know the characteristic African and there are also characteristics which are quite different in Caucasians so you wouldn't necessarily have those other features but you could certainly have the skin coloration although I'm not aware case where that's actually happened and there are multiple genes involved in controlling a skin color so again it would be quite a complicated genetic change mm. that would have to happen but theoretically it's not impossible 23 minutes after 10 if you've just tuned in you're listening to the familiar voice of the naked scientist and we are taking your questions for chris 702 and cape talk the naked scientist vernon in cape town welcome to the show vernon what is your question good morning chris Hi, name vernon. is vernon I have a simple question for you. I'm sure it will be child's play for you. We've got a water crisis here, and uh, in order for us to try and reduce uh, the amount of wastage of drinking water, can you perhaps come up with an idea to replace the drinking water we use in our tanks, uh, in the toilet uh, tanks, uh, flushing toilet tanks, a solution or anything else other than drinking water? Thank you, Vernon. Great question. Well, um, Vernon, the, the, this is a very important question and it's going to become more and more important yes. in future because for a number of reasons. One, the human population is increasing, therefore our demand on water is increasing. Two, in lots of countries people don't depend on rainfall for their water, they depend on the ground. They draw water out of the ground from boreholes and this is fossil water. It's just like mining for fossil fuels. That water's been in the ground percolating and filling up these underground reservoirs for millions of years and we're tapping into it now and it's a finite supply because we're taking it out faster than it can accumulate. And in many countries, we're seeing groundwater levels slowly dropping. The third thing is that we are anticipating quite fast climate change 
And regardless of whether that's man-made or otherwise, there is a changing climate. And the predictions that we have at the moment are that parts of the world that are dry are likely to get drier. There are parts of the world that are very wet at the moment that may well get wetter. But the reality is, therefore, that people will suffer probably a lack of water because the places that are nicest to live are those that are not swamps and very wet already. So, therefore, everyone faces a reduction in rainfall. So we need to have better stewardship in the face of a rising demand for water because of a rising population, people moving to move from areas that become inhospitable to areas that are still nice to live. There's going to be more water pressure there. Mm. And, and then the super-added effect of there, there probably will be less rainfall anyway. So anticipating that we have to look to the future now people are inventing all kinds of technologies to try and uh, overcome this the most simple and short-term practical one is well let's be better at using what we've got um, in australia for example lots of people are putting in under their house water tanks and they put the rainfall that comes down in massive amounts but only occasionally you collect a lot of water you have a capacity to collect an enormous amount of water and store a lot of water so that when it when the sun shines you do make hay if you mix <laughs> mixing my metaphors there but that would be a very simple and cheap way to do it because there's there's no reason why you couldn't flush a toilet with rainwater why use beautifully crystal clear filtered very expensive drinking water to flush a loo no need to. Similar with washing clothes. Your clothes don't care if the, if the water is off your roof. They really don't care if you wash them with the soap suds and things in that. Mm. Obviously, if you drink dirty water, that's bad. So we should actually have a better usage of the water we use. We should have clean water that we use for drinking and essential things, and we should have second-class water that we use for uh, doing things like washing cars, washing clothes, and flushing toilets. And then there's the, well, instead of watering the garden with water out of a hose that's come from a water purification plant, why not have a bucket in the shower and collect all the bucket of water from your shower? Because loads of the water that bounces off you just goes down the drain. Why not have a bucket in there? Water the flowers with it. There are phosphates and things in all these shampoos, which actually the plants love, and it makes them grow better. So you get free fertilizer as well as cheap water. Okay, let's go to Malcolm. Hello, Malcolm. Hi there, Sirius and Chris. I've got a question. Hi, Malcolm. You, Chris? Yeah. Chris, go for it. Yeah. Chris, about two and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with CRDP. Um, yeah, I just progressively got weaker and weaker, and finally they came up with a diagnosis. So I wonder if there's anything new in the way of treatment for it. And also, can I have flu vaccinations or not? Okay, I think, are you, did you say CIDP, which is chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, yeah. um, which is why we call it CIDP, is that the condition? Yeah. That's right. Well, this is, this is a condition we don't really understand very well. It's a condition in which, for some reason, the immune system seems to take unkindly to your nervous system, and it leads to the loss of the nerve signals going to muscles and things and this causes a range of symptoms one of which is weakness one way this is managed is by periodically infusing people with immunoglobulins or antibodies from donor patients and this seems to damp things down but as we don't know exactly why it happens um, we don't know exactly 
what the best way to treat it or stop it is. And I haven't heard of any breakthroughs in this area. And, of course, one's very cautious about immune suppression, stopping the immune system, because we have an immune system for a very good reason, which is that it's, it's like a firewall on your computer, and it's keeping out all these unwanted cyber attacks. And if you dismantle your firewall, then you're more, more vulnerable to be becoming a victim of online attack and it's the same the microbial world is trying to get into your body all the time so if you damp down your immune response too much there's a there's a danger that you're going to succumb to something else so at the moment i haven't heard of anything that's a big breakthrough in this area but uh, i will have another review of the literature for you and um and perhaps i'll report back next week if i find anything thank you malcolm and all the best um Peter, you've waited a long time. You've only got a minute, so let's make it very quick and see whether the Naked Scientist can answer you pithily. Thank you so much for the take-up call. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Um, there was a program on, on BBC called Trust Me, My Doctor, where they actually made uh, uh, claims that gluten is not uh, a proven fact and there's no proper way to really for gluten intolerance. However, uh, that flies in the face of a book uh, written by Dr. Phil Mutter, where he says that gluten is actually can almost change your DNA. And I'd like to know from a naked scientist, is it true? Is, is, there a, a, is gluten a fat or is it still a theory? And uh, can it be tested, yes or no? I'll listen on the radio. Thank Thanks you. It's a lovely question. Okay, I'll give you about a minute, I'll Chris. I'll be as fast as I can. Now, gluten is not a fat. Um, it, gluten is uh, a component of, or did you say fact? Maybe I'm insulting, I'm sorry. Um, but the line wasn't good. Gluten is a component of cereal grains, and we don't know why, but there are certain people who are susceptible to its effects, and it triggers an immune response in the lining of the intestine, and it causes a condition called celiac disease. And it absolutely does do that, because if a person excludes gluten or other components of it from their diet, then all of their symptoms go away. Mm. So we're pretty comfortable that uh, gluten does appear to be linked to these diseases, whether or not uh, there's an additional set of diseases that go alongside this and a masquerade or something similar, I don't know. Um, but certainly uh, when I was at medical school and up until yesterday, as far as I was aware, gluten does contain chemicals that trigger this immune response in susceptible people and it does damage the lining of the intestine. And if you exclude gluten, those symptoms go away and you're healthy. Thanks for sharing your knowledge with us as you do every week so generously, Chris. Have a wonderful weekend. It's a pleasure.